We're going to look over a couple of different chapters here. We're on chapters 28 and 29 primarily, focusing on baptism. Uh, I have also been given chapter 32, and I don't know that we're going to make it to that today. We'll, we'll see where we go. Uh, in our confession, chapter 28 gives a very brief statement on the ordinances overall, has two very short paragraphs, and then chapter 29 is baptism. So I'm going to focus on the section in 28, uh, primarily on baptism, but we'll make a couple of notes about both. So 28.1, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. So we have only two ordinances or sacraments for the church. The word sacrament from sacramentum in the Latin just means uh, sacred, set apart, something along those lines. Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong with that terminology. It can simply mean we are recognizing that these, as our confession says, are these ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. So that, that sacrament, that the term can simply refer to that. We recognize there's something special about them. There are many people who use this term to mean something more along the lines of there's something magical about them or they impart salvation or a special saving grace in and of themselves. So uh, I kind of like what Waldron says. I rely pretty heavily on Waldron's commentary for this. As long as you mean the right thing by using the term or not using the term sacrament, you can go either way, and there's not a lot of reason to have lengthy arguments about whether or not we can use that term. So there are only two ordinances that we recognize for the church. Uh, Roman Catholics, I think, have seven, would include marriage in that, uh, which is a, a we understand to be a mistake. Marriage, for example, is a creation ordinance. It's not an ordinance of the church. We recognize two ordinances. These are the proper ordinances of the church as the church. Now, this term positive here in the confession in this first uh, first paragraph, their positive institution, this refers to the concept of positive law, and this is primarily as opposed to natural law. Natural law has the, the concept of things that are law, are moral by nature, by the nature of who God is, and who and what he has made his creation to be. Positive laws are laws that are given in addition to that. They are, of course, in accordance with his character, with the character of God, and they are good and right and proper, but they are not necessarily by nature binding on all people at all times. They are extra, they are given in addition to full, natural, universal, moral laws. So, of course, baptism has not been around since creation began. Jeremy mentioned recently when talking about the Lord's Supper that that ordinance has something to say about the return of Christ, that we do this until he returns. The same thing is true of baptism, of course, that baptism has something to say to us about the return of Christ. We fully expect that Jesus will return and baptism indicates that as well. Therefore, these ordinances, both Lord's Supper and baptism, are to be observed until the end of the world. Does anybody have any questions on that so far? 
we'll kind of jump into the meat of 29 and we may get into more stuff there. So I'm going to move on. I believe Preston, whoever's covering, yeah, Lord's Supper is going to deal with 28.2 uh, when he does that. Uh, so chapter 29 of baptism. I'm going to start with the, the first paragraph, um, <clears throat> though I won't read it directly. Baptism is, for the individual baptized, a sign of fellowship and identification with Christ in his death and resurrection, of being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving ourselves to God through Christ to live and walk in newness of life. This is what baptism signifies. Through baptism, we are not actually made holy as though baptism justifies or itself sanctifies us. But we signify through baptism that we have been made holy, that we have been buried and resurrected with Christ, and so on. Now, this, this presents us with a bit of a difference between our views and some others. So I'm going to turn here. Note that in, in Romans 6, when Paul is giving his treatment of the question of should we continue in sins that grace may abound, he comments on and points us to our baptism, not in saying that because we are baptized, we are automatically holy or sin no more, but actually points us to it saying that given the severity of that which baptism signifies, we ought not continue in sin, but to walk in newness of life. So he points us to the idea that baptism signifies that this change is real and has already taken place in us. Baptism does then indicate something of our response to God's work in us in salvation. Colossians 2.12 says that being buried with Christ in baptism, we are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. So baptism isn't what saves us, but its meaning includes the signification that we have responded to God's work in us through faith. Um, this is why then we of course have our second paragraph the distinguishing mark of credo baptists is that those who do actually profess repentance towards god faith in and obedience to our lord jesus christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance we are credo baptists we baptize those who believe galatians 3:27 shows the expectation that those baptized are, in fact, regenerate. Not as though baptism is what regenerates or justifies, but that baptism signifies that regeneration has occurred. For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Acts 22.16 likewise indicates that baptism is either, there's two ways you can look at this for Acts 22, 16. Uh, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There's two ways you can, you can look at that. Either baptism itself is what is actually washing away your sins. We know from numerous other passages, things we've covered in the Confession already, relating to the, the Reformation tenets, sola fide and justification by faith alone, right? That baptism doesn't magically itself save us. So the other way that we can understand this passage then is that baptism is signifying 
that that has occurred, that the washing away of our sins has, in fact, occurred. That's the concept that goes into a water baptism that we are immersed and raised to walk in newness of life, signifying that that has actually occurred. Our sins have been cleansed from us. Obviously, this section, of course, is dealing especially with our distinguishing marks as Reformed Credo-Baptists over and against typically Reformed Pado-Baptists. Um, there are two different major categories of Pado-Baptist Christians. Um, you have those who are sacramentalists who believe something along the lines of baptism or regeneration. Baptism regenerates or saves us. Roman Catholics have something of that going on in believing that baptism actually infuses us, makes us holy, or saves us. You see quite frequently throughout history then the, the idea of a deathbed baptism or waiting until the end to be baptized so that that will actually wash away our sins. <clears throat> Baptists reformed, of course, across the board, have rejected that notion. Again, this was a central tenet of the Reformation. We are saved by faith in Christ alone, through grace, not by works, not by baptism, not by anything in addition to Christ. So then that leaves us with the other kind of paedo-baptist, a reformed Presbyterian usually, who holds to paedo-baptism. So they baptize babies primarily because they believe the covenant of grace encompasses the children of believers or the whole household if at least one of the parents is a believer. And since baptism is the sign of the covenant, then they argue you should baptize your whole household, your children, etc. So we yes sir. Real quick, can you throw out some definitions of faith and credo? Yeah, credo uh, refers to faith or belief, so I believe creed is where we ha- that comes from. So credo-baptism, the idea that we should baptize only those who profess faith in Christ. Pado, ref- uh, I don't know if it's Latin or Greek, but it means infant. So we baptize our infants or children, pado-baptism. Um, some Presbyterians, to get the covenantal idea across, actually prefer the term oikos-baptism, which is Greek for house or household. So they, they like that idea. It's, it's not so much the children as it is the concept of the covenant uh, of grace, including whole households. Does that make sense? Um, we have already seen in the, in the beginning of our introduction here several scriptures that give us the understanding, present us the understanding of baptism as signifying that which has already happened. We have been buried and raised with Christ, united to him through faith. We have put on Christ and have had our sins washed away. So this, of course, presents these scripture passages that give us that understanding, presents a difficulty for a paedo-baptist approach. So either you have to have a different understanding of those scriptures or take on a more sacramentalist position. Your children are, in fact, actually holy or saved already. Reformed Presbyterians deny that that concept. So of course, we as Baptists, our critique is that they're inconsistent on this point. Um, <clears throat> First Peter three twenty one says, "The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God." 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have that idea again that baptism signifies something about our response, our saving response, our, our, our response in saving faith to the work that God has done in us. In Mark 3.11, we read that John the Baptist, not John the Presbyterian, by the way, says, uh, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, of course, he's making an argument there about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but he says baptism unto repentance. So there's that connection again between repentance, so the connection to faith, credo, baptism. That there is a difference between the covenant membership, between the old and new covenants, is made clear in Romans. So this would be an issue here for for paedo-baptists. Again, they would argue on the basis of covenant and the idea that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is virtually the same as the New, that there's an overlying covenant of grace. We've touched on this some in the Confession, which deals with covenants, and I myself would see a significant connection and an overlying, overarching covenant of grace, which connects the Old and New Covenant. But Romans tells us that there's a difference between the membership in the Old and New. In Romans 9... Uh, 3 through 8, I think. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So in that passage, he has a couple of different, different things there. One, we're going to jump back to in a minute, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption in verse 4. There's a concept of adoption that pertains to Israelites by virtue of being Israelites. But then he also notes twice then in that section that I read that they are not all Israel which are Israel and just because they are the biological children of Abraham does not mean they are actually the children of of God. And of course Jesus remarks on that as well. If you compare this section with Romans 8, 14 through 17, there Paul says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So there's a distinction that Paul draws here between the membership in the Old Covenant all those who are biologically born is Israelites were members of the old covenant. But not all those who are biological children of Abraham or of believers are members of the new covenant, Paul tells us. So again, paedo-baptists, reformed paedo-baptists baptize their children by virtue of the idea that they're in the covenant of grace. 
Whereas we see Paul saying here in Romans that there's a distinction between the memberships. So we would in fact say that all the members of the covenant are to be baptized. All members of the new covenant are to be baptized. We are simply pointing to the scriptures which show that those who are members of the new covenant are those who have been united with Christ by grace through faith. And these are the proper recipients of baptism. Um, another argument that is made by Pado Baptists is that the New Test is that baptism is the New Testament equivalent of circumcision, right? So their position is that since God only has one people gradually revealed, which of course we as as covenantal Reformed Baptists agree with, then the Old Testament Church is the same as the New Testament Church, and so the same rules apply. There are some significant difficulties with that kind of an argument when applied to baptism. In the first place, only males were circumcised, which we know from the New Testament that women were the proper recipients of baptism as well. So it's difficult to make this kind of an argument as a paedo-baptist of a one-to-one correlation between circumcision and baptism simply by virtue of that fact. But perhaps more significantly, the church in the Old Testament was not identical to the nation of Israel. Not all Israel are Israel, and not all of the nation of Israel were what we call regenerate believers. Now, obviously as Baptists we recognize that not all members of a New Testament church, Baptist church even, are necessarily regenerate believers. But of course, the point isn't that we're saying that all those who are baptized are necessarily regenerate. We're saying that the regenerate are the proper recipients. In addition to this, note that there is a similarity between circumcision and baptism. Circumcision signified entrance by physical birth into the covenant people of God, then outwardly manifested in a primarily geopolitical ethnic group. Baptism signifies entrance into, by spiritual birth, into the covenant people of God, now outwardly manifested in the voluntary assemblies of believers. So again, we agree that members of the covenant are the proper recipients of baptism. The difference is we believe that scripture shows that only those who believe are members of the new covenant. Does anybody have any questions here at this point about the basic Presbyterian, Pado-Baptist arguments and how we would look at those and understand the scriptures? Well, there's a comment by Abraham Kuyper dealing with, uh, uh, well, yes, we re- you know, some, some Presbyterians say, yeah, we recognize the importance of faith. Well, we're just going to assume that our children are born. Like, you know, we talk about uh, infant salvation mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm. Uh, that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we're just going to go ahead and assume that our children are elect, so therefore we're going to baptize them. Right, that presumptive regeneration right. kind of a concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they turn around, and so when that child, then one of the, or a child who has been baptized this way, turns out to be uh, in rebellion and not living by faith, they have to discipline the child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They actually will discipline the child. I, I think uh, so. I think one obviously that presents the difficulty of uh, of this this tension between baptizing on presumption 
and then having necessarily having instances where those children are not in fact regenerate and do not in fact believe. It also has the difficulty of being in tension with scriptures that we have read here today, which speak of baptism as signifying our response in in faith. You don't really have that. Uh, Reformed, so Calvinistic Presbyterians like to kind of note, well, well, our view of baptism gives a very monergistic, it's a very monergistic symbol here. We don't do anything for our salvation, and so the infant is incapable of doing anything in terms of baptism. Um, Probably the most significant problem with that, in my view, is this fact. There's a bit of a confusion of categories. It is absolutely true that we are unable to do anything in terms of our salvation. We are unable to merit it, and we are unable to do anything at all until God regenerates us. But God doesn't believe on our behalf. We respond to God's work of regeneration necessarily through repentance and faith. So salvation is all the work of God in terms of that which God has done in us and enabling us. But we still do, in fact, respond in repentance and faith. A credo-baptist approach is a better symbol of that full picture than simply saying, oh, look, you know, they can't do anything. That all makes sense. Good on that so far. Yes, sir. I think there's ditches on on either side of the road that you can fall into there. Um, I was a little bit more familiar, actually, with the, the kind of the wait and see in, in the fundamentalist circles I was a part of, where it was there was kind of a delay. We see that sometimes in Reformed Baptist circles as well, where if they're five or six, we're going to be like, no, not until 10 or 13 or something, you know, until you've seen some kind of a pattern. I would say you can have a ditch on that side, excessive that we put in barriers in place that say, oh, we're going to wait this long time until we've got this long history of faithfulness. I think there is a legitimate barrier there that doesn't simply accept true, simple, saving faith and has to add all these requirements. On the other hand, I think we want to take our credo-baptist stance seriously in terms of what Scripture says. Hey, repent and believe and be baptized, well, you know, your four-year-old can do the things that mommy and daddy does because they're mommy and daddy and they don't know any different, and they want to just be a part of them and do those things. So there is a legitimate place for saying we want to ensure there is some kind of understanding and comprehension and real faith, 
but I would want to be cautious of pushing into either of, of those ditches. I have young children. I haven't dealt with that myself. I don't know if Patrick wants to add on to that in terms of, I don't have much to offer in terms of practical, like, how do you actually do that? But That's a great question. Um, so there's a couple of, a couple of things that you know, would be... First of all, the, fill up an Ethiopian eunuch. We, you know, I wouldn't propose, nor would those that have gone before us, propose that that's the model for baptism. Philip was a, an apostle. So did he have discernment that we don't have? Yeah. But also, we're not, we're not saying that's a model. So historically, Reformed Baptists have even would even perhaps be described as adult baptizers. Because, and this is, and you brought up an excellent point, because, see, we have, we have allowed the standard of um, connection savingly to Christ to be understanding. In other words, the question that we ask little children and adults is, mm-hmm. do you understand this? Whereas the Bible reports that even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, the fact is the demons understand Christ, but they have no experience of Christ. And so, Reformed Baptists have been noteworthy historically in really requiring um, this proof of faith, the praxis, this idea of, look, first of all, you know, there is a... Those that would be making decisions to allow baptism are, in a number of ways, gatekeepers. We don't keep people in, you know, or out of the kingdom, but nonetheless, it's appropriate that there are assessments, biblical assessments that would be made. Because one of the things that that current evangelicalism, particularly Baptistic evangelicalism, is characterized by is paleo-baptism. We're baptizing babies. We're baptizing. How many people in here have been baptized more than once? Okay, you were baptized as a baby. Okay, so was I. Okay, okay, I was baptized before I was regenerated. There was no, was I a compliant child? Yeah, sure I was. But, but, I, but I didn't have an experience. And so Baptists, you know, recognize and, and, and mistake their claim. Now there is, a, there is tension there, uh, particularly with children, because it's appropriate that we want children to enjoy their baptism. You know, this idea that, look, mommy, daddy, I'm persuaded God has saved me. I want to be baptized. I want to enter into that. We're also persuaded that you know it would be mostly appropriate that they be baptized before they take the Lord's Supper. So there's these questions that surround. I don't think that I don't think you need to be 18 to be baptized. But I think there needs to be a credible profession. Is there praxis? Is there you know is, is there really regenerate life going on? We're not you know, to the best of our ability. Can we assess and say yes? That's what's happening. And then we also help, we help the, the individual as well. That's mm-hmm. very, very helpful for them. Otherwise, we just present them mm-hmm. willy-nilly, mm-hmm. do you understand? Uh, and we want, to get, we want to get beyond that. Because even the passage in First Peter that I didn't get to today, the idea there wasn't really even technically talking about water baptism. The idea was talking about the spiritual baptism. Mm-hmm. So the covenant transition from the old to the new, from the physical to the spiritual. No less real, but, but spiritual. The spiritual covenant began with regeneration, the spiritual baptism, right? Uh, we can say the same thing. The first ordinance was when? 
in the garden. The tree of, the tree of life. The tree of life was not a magical tree. It, it wouldn't have given them life had they eaten it. It would have been, a, in a sense, a sacrament or an ordinance such that they had life. Now they can enjoy the ordinance. And so that's, again, our view of baptism is they mm-hmm. have life. Mm-hmm. Now they can enjoy the ordinance. And so that's the idea. Yeah, absolutely. What what he said? Well, I love that same line. We're, uh, we're told in Ephesians that we've been baptized, or maybe it's in Colossians, we've been baptized into Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the real baptism. The ordinance is just following. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Signifying the, yeah. what has already yeah. followed. Yes, sir. This is who we are. You know, this is a, this is the biblical mm-hmm. notion. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would also note, as far as the, uh, particularly in fundamentalist circles, so very that that being baptized multiple times and so on, heavily reliant on the conversion experience, and and what Patrick was talking, this is this is right in line with what Patrick is saying. I'm using slightly different terminology, but but that that concept of relying on just mere intellectual understanding. Do you understand what I'm referring to here? Is that conversion experience? That idea of oh, you know, so I understand and I can point to this time, and I can be baptized. Because I've I've assented and I I have this this experience, as opposed to recognizing the reality of what has or hasn't occurred. And then one final note, if I may, I think I would also add it, it's appropriate too to to think in terms of um, seeing the signs of regeneration appropriate to age as well. Right, if you have a 21-year-old or a 30-year-old who's an unbeliever and becomes regenerate, there's such a history and such a character built up of who and what they are. You are going to see some really significant changes right away in that individual, and they're they're going to be a lot more marked and a lot more outward because they're uh, an adult who has their own person and does their own things. You're not going to see exactly the same thing in an eight-year-old. It doesn't mean there aren't signs, and we should absolutely be be looking at and paying attention to that. Did you have something else, Jeremy? Well, I, I was going to say that the key difference for me, and this is, this is you know, my personal dealings, is every time I experienced a baptism at a church, someone was telling me, hey, you got to get baptized. Whereas the eunuch is the one who's been studying, he doesn't understand it, he makes a profession, and, and Philip's like, well, if you believe, and he's like, yes, there's water. Why can't I do this? It's prompted by the eunuch himself. Mm-hmm. Realizing, mm-hmm. hey, I want to do this. I have committed to this. This is this is what I want. And, and I think that's a, a key distinction. I think, you know, that Patrick was talking about where you know we're baptizing infants. They're doing it because we're telling them to. You know, that's what it is. That's what you got to do. It's not the child realizing, hey, I'm a sinner. Okay, I've repented. I want to get baptized too, because look, that's what the scripture says. They need to tell us that, not us tell them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. John, did you have something?
submit your five-year-old to church discipline, and if the answer is a pretty strong, absolutely not, then, you know, yeah, maybe recognize. But that's a good note. Yes, sir. I agree with that. Yeah. Anybody else have any comments or questions at the moment where we're at? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and take a brief moment to note um, something else about a pedo-baptist approach. This this household argument um, particularly in the examples in the New Testament, right, that there are several places where it's, and this person and their whole household was baptized. Um, I didn't do an extensive all-out study on this. Other, other people have, and I have in the past. I don't have all that in my notes here. Just note that I don't believe there's ever a time in which that's indicated that, that there, there wasn't belief in, involved. There's belief involved. In addition to that, the several examples we have of somebody saying, oh, so they and their household. So you've got to remember, kind of like John's noting, we're, we're rather unique geographically and in terms of our historical approach. Patrick has spoken a lot about recently in terms of the atomization of our society. So we don't have households with slaves, certainly, but not even servants or this kind of a concept of adults, multiple adults in the household. There is no indication in Scripture, it is an argument from silence for a Presbyterian paedo-baptist to say, hey, their household was baptized, that means there were infants or young children there. It, it really doesn't indicate anything of the kind, and the current, the structure of the society at the time was such, you would have had adults living in the household, servants, slaves, adult children, extended family members, and so on, and the scriptures tell us they believed and their house, and they were baptized. Does anybody have any questions on, or comments on that note of the, the households at all? Um, our third paragraph, and I'll make these real real short here. Third paragraph, the outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Two, two parts to that, real simple. We use water, we don't use grape juice or something else weird. Um, primarily because water is a cleansing agent. That's the, the primary element of symbolism there. Our sins are washed away. That's the symbolism we're referring to. And then, of course, Trinitarian baptism. That is the example we are presented with in Scripture. Salvation is, as has been noted throughout our study in the Confession, a Trinitarian affair. And so we are, in fact, baptized in the name of the Son, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paragraph 4, immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. So there's a lot of argument back and forth between Presbyterians and, and Baptists on this point. Uh, I stick with the historical, traditional Baptist approach. The literal meaning of the word baptizo means, and including the meaning and usage in secular Greek, means to immerse, immerse or submerge. And the figurative meaning found in Greek literature as well 
means to be overwhelmed as in a flood or to be plunged into calamity or ruin or things of that nature, right? So both usages, both the literal, the meaning of the word itself and its use in figurative terminology in contemporary secular Greek refers to this concept of being immersed or plunged into. I would note, uh, I would agree with Waldron here, um, this is, our confession says, is necessary to the due, or that is proper administration. It does not necessarily mean that someone who was sprinkled or half immersed or whatever has not been baptized in any sense whatsoever, that theirs was totally illegitimate baptism. Is, is Waldron's take in my position as well. I don't know if Patrick would have anything to add to that. But we recognize the immersion is the due, the proper administration. That is the way in which we, we see it done. It is the example given in Scripture. And we should, in fact, follow through with, with that model. Does anybody have any comments or questions on, on that? Uh, in Europe, somewhere it's extremely cold, uh, they will pour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, uh, that's, that's an exception. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rule. Right, right. Uh, I, I, yeah, yeah. I would certainly personally be very cautious of, of going around telling people who weren't immersed in a traditional Baptistic fashion that they could not possibly have had a legitimate baptism at all. That, that's, yes, sir? I would want to look at what their, what their circumstances are, what they're talking about, and why. So again, we recognize baptism is this symbolization of that which has already occurred. If, as an 18-year-old or whatever, you look back and say, hey, I told mommy and daddy at five that I believed, but I didn't really know what I was talking about, and I have since... I am now convinced that I have since been regenerate and saved, and I was baptized then. I want to be rebaptized following the, the the ordinance as set forward that it presents that picture. Absolutely, you should go ahead and rebaptize them because they were not baptized in accordance with the the ordinances set forward. But I would also want to look at that and say, you know, but is it just? This conversion experience thing that I'm still following, you know, I'm not sure if I really believed at 11 and then at 14, I had an experience again and at 15, you know, and rebaptized every time. You'd want to talk about that. Yes, sir. That's that's. Thank you for that correction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An Anabaptist thing, yeah, yeah. I... Mhm, mhm, mm-hmm. absolutely, yes, ma'am. And that—that's one of the reasons why I would, again, I would want to be very cautious about like going around telling people that they're not legitimate. You want to be careful with that. But the example we have in Scripture is clearly immersion over and over and over again. That's the—that is the pattern we are given. That is the due administration of the ordinance. Along that same line. Scripture says there's only one baptism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to request for symbolic reasons or something like that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Any other questions or comments? 
I was given chapter 32, but I anticipated that we probably don't have time today to deal with that. Um, is that all right, Patrick, if we figure out how to put that in somewhere else? But, I mean, I'm happy to deal with it, but, but I think for time's sake we'll jump to a different topic. So, anybody have any other questions, comments about baptism, pedo-baptism, whether the Presbyterian, Reformed, Catholic variety, anything like that? All right. We will close in prayer.